Greetings, this is Douglas Kimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me today is Yiting Liu. Yiting will be discussing her international perspectives titled Examining Holdings with Chinese Exposure Amidst Market Turbulence. In our discussion, we'll cover Yiting's background and we'll provide some insight into life in China and how it has changed over the last several years. Enjoy. Yiting, tell us a little bit about your path to Diamond Hill and your coverage universe here. Okay. So I'm actually originally from Changchun, China. In Chinese, it's Jilinshang, Changchun Shi, a tier three city situated between Siberia and Russia and North Korea, known today as the Rust Belt of China. Columbus, Ohio is actually my second home because I immigrated here with my family when I was in high school. I attended college at the University of Michigan, and after graduation, I joined Lehman Brothers in New York City in the investment banking division covering financial institutions clients. Then in 2008, I actually relocated to Hong Kong with Lehman and lived there for almost five years. And I spent the majority of my time in Hong Kong covering Asian banks for a financial specialist sell-side firm called Keith, Briad and Woods. And about five years ago, I decided to move back to the U.S. for the long term and was very fortunate to land a role here at Diamond Hill on the financials team. And I now cover international financials. So we have a little bit in common uh, in that I'm from the Rust Belt of the United States, yes. Youngstown, Ohio. So <laughs> uh, a little bit of synergy there. So uh, we hear a lot of anecdotal stories about growth in China, the impact of one-child policy, tight relationship amongst generations of families. But as you mentioned, you bring firsthand knowledge about these things to your insight on the region. Tell us, uh, if you would, a little bit about the insight that you bring from your personal experience growing up in Changchun, Changchun, Changchun yep. China, mm-hmm. um, and just give us a little bit more information there. Sure. Um, so I was born in the 1980s. And my generation is really the byproduct of China's one-child policy, where our parents were mandated to have only one child per family. So family relationships are actually very important in the Chinese culture, and they're supposed to provide us a sense of identity and also a strong network of support. Therefore, the Chinese families are usually very tight. Now, kids from my generation usually have constant emotional and financial interactions with our parents and grandparents, who oftentimes subsidize um, our living expenses as we are the only child in the family. So actually, for example, this year in June, I went back to my hometown, Changchun, to attend my cousin's wedding. Not surprisingly... Um, you know, the newlywed usually have a new apartment, mm-hmm. uh, the new abode, all the remodeling and furnishing costs associated with that new abode, as well as um, the wedding banquet, they were completely paid for by both sides of the parents. Oh, that's a nice start. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, of course, my cousin and his wife are both only childs. If you think about it, with major expense items like those have been taken care of by by the parents, um, my cousin and his wife, majority of their income can be used toward consumption upgrade. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Which for my cousin, it probably means buying virtual items um, for video games. And his (laughs) wife, it could be, who knows, like high-end cosmetics or skincare products. And they also just, you know, went to the Maldives for their honeymoon. Very nice. Yes. So um, I just want to say, I mean, 
My cousin and his wife are actually by no means extraordinary. They have very regular jobs. They're from you know ordinary Chinese families. This is just an illustration of kind of the unique Chinese family dynamics that have facilitated consumption upgrade in China. So hopefully your cousin and his wife don't listen to this and hear you <laughs> tell them that they are not extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but <laughs> yes. And then there's one more thing I do want to kind of mention about my parents' generation, which is kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents were born in the 1950s. And they're really kind of the generation where they were the lucky beneficiaries of China's housing reform in the 1990s. Now, before the reform, housing in China was centrally planned, um, allocated by the state via state-owned enterprises, where most of the Chinese were actually employed at. Now, as part of that housing reform in the late 1990s, employees of these state-owned enterprises were awarded their first apartment in urban areas at prices substantially below market value. So implicitly, these urban Chinese got a huge subsidy or windfall, some say as much as 70% from the state. Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. So now those housing that were privatized oftentimes were older units. They weren't well-maintained. So as a result, the typical urban Chinese household from the 1990s tried to accumulate more savings, Mm -hmm. right, to upgrade their living conditions. Sure. Now, fortunately, since the 1990s, you have a very rapid real wage growth, Mm -hmm. right? So the Chinese, you know, basically were able to accumulate and amass more savings, buy more properties, essentially riding that huge real estate boom in the last 20 years. Based on my personal experience Mm -hmm. of talking to friends and family in China from that generation, my parents' generation, Mm -hmm. um, I know for a fact most of them have reaped tremendous benefits from the housing privatization. The properties that they bought initially for de minimis amount have actually appreciated 40 to 50-fold over the last 20 years. It's a lot of wealth creation. Yes, huge. And I think this is probably part of the reason why the Chinese are just so fanatic or obsessed about real estate investment worldwide. (laughs) So, I mean, to sum it all up, essentially, housing privatization and real rapid income growth Mm -hmm. over the last two decades or so have fueled wealth accumulation in China by the urban middle class. But most importantly, I think, is the unique cultural dynamics that I mentioned. Close familial ties, one-child policy, intergenerational wealth transfer. These are the dynamics that will continue to be a tailwind for growing consumption in China. So in in your paper, which is one of the things we're here to discuss, your international perspectives, you cite the work done by Arthur Kruber. Yeah. Saying Mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. In your perspectives piece, specifically his comments on how in the 80s the Chinese consumer was buying bicycles, electric fans, basic furniture sets, uh, and then through into the 2000s, they're buying autos, high-end home furnishings, and becoming, as we know, the world's fastest-growing cell phone market. As the Chinese consumer continues to evolve and looks to the consumption of services, as you mentioned, your cousin buying virtual items in a video yes, game, yes. Which, which my son does, mm-hmm. um, videos, music, movies, in lieu of focusing on material goods, how does this play into your analysis of or your analysis of opportunities in the market? 
Here at Diamond Hill, whether it's domestic or international investing, we approach it from a bottom-up perspective. Perspective, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Our research associates and analysts recommend the most attractive ideas in their respective sectors based on their assessment of companies' business fundamentals and valuations. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're not really looking for any thematic trends. Right. And then invest. Right. right. Accordingly. Mm-hmm. So I just want to clarify that. Of course. Right. And and as you mentioned, you know, um, in author Krober's quote. At the beginning of the consumption upgrade cycle, consumers do gravitate toward higher quality branded goods. And we have seen that and will continue to see that secular shift toward premiumization in China, especially in products like beer and spirits, mm-hmm. consumption of cosmetics and skincare, baby diapers, etc. But today, in addition to that premiumization trend toward goods, we're also seeing the typical Chinese consumer increasingly focused on consumption of services such as entertainment, entertainment, tourism, healthcare, education. So that's great, right?、Mm-hmm. But how do analysts actually take all these secular trends into consideration when they evaluate businesses?、Mm-hmm. Now, analysts usually account for these trends. When they actively project their normalized five-year forecast for a company that may be exposed to these trends, now the analyst has to evaluate first: Are these trends sustainable or not?、Mm-hmm. And if they are, how much does he or she wants to incorporate that into the company's top-line growth forecast or fundamentals? So that's how we incorporate these secular trends into our our evaluation. Of companies, so it's one input amongst many. Yes, not driving. What not driving.、At. It's not the sole factor driving our investment thesis, but it does have something to do、right. with a potential input in the overall thesis. Okay, gotcha. So, from a company-specific perspective, you mentioned Tencent Holdings,、uh, their WeChat, as something much more than just a social media app. So, talk a little bit about how this company is ingrained in Chinese society and the influence that it holds on the market. Yeah, sure.、Um, so, Tencent's WeChat actually has more than a billion users. It is the dominant、uh, instant messaging and social platform in China. But in my view, is much more than just an app.、Mm-hmm. Uh, WeChat really serves as the marketing and distribution channel for goods, content, and services for pretty much all. Individuals, businesses, organizations, but most importantly, it's able to close the loop from user traffic to end sales all seamlessly within WeChat. One、wow. system, it's like an ecosystem. Okay. A complete closed loop ecosystem. So maybe I I can illustrate with a quick example. You know, you have these. Global luxury brands like LVMH or Estee Lauder or Tiffany's of the world, they have all created their unique virtual storefront in WeChat that allow users to gain information about the brands and products, make purchase decisions, and execute sales transactions all within WeChat. Now that example I happen to provide you is you know a global brand or business. But it doesn't have to be one. It could be an organization or a public institution, such as the Great Wall of China, which is a popular touristy site、right. in Beijing. That you know, if you're visiting China for the, for the first time, you should definitely go. But through 
Great Wall of China's unique virtual storefront in WeChat, users and followers can gain information about its history, opening hours, detailed map. They can purchase tickets ahead of time. Hmm. You know, pretty much everything. Wow! So it's very useful.、Um, but basically, to sum everything up, essentially, on the one hand, WeChat has more than a billion users, a large and sticky user base.、Hmm. Now, on the other hand. Individuals, whether they be you know influencers or key opinion leaders, businesses, whether domestic or global, organizations or public institutions, they all want to market and distribute their goods, services, or content on this powerful platform called WeChat.、Hmm. Right. So essentially, it's very dominant on both sides of the network, and that's only one property of Tencent. And Tencent has much more than that. Tencent also owns QQ, which is another social media platform similar to WeChat, but targeting Generation Z users. Tencent is also the largest mobile game publisher、mm-hmm. in China and owns the largest video streaming, music streaming, news feed, reading apps in the country. So it has very strong content generation and distribution capabilities. Right, and when、mm-hmm. you sum it all up, Tencent and its many properties are essentially the main gateway for personal, business, and institutional communication in China. So your your paper also examines Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, referred to as LVMH.、Uh, tell us a little bit about this company and its positioning, not just in China, but you know around the world. Yeah, sure. So、um, LVMH is actually the largest luxury goods conglomerate in the world, right? It has more than seventy luxury brands across multiple product categories. For example, in fashion and leather goods, you might have heard Louis Vuitton handbags. Yeah, my wife has. <laughs> <laughs>、um, and then in wine and spirit, have you heard of Hennessy Cognac? Yes. Moet Chandon <laughs> Champagne. Um, and then, of course, LVMH has other categories such as fragrances and cosmetics, jewelry and watches, and also specialty retailing. So, our investment in the company is very much premised on LVMH's diversified brand portfolio, which positions the company well against economic, business, or category cycles. So, for example, as an aspirational luxury consumer. Um, I may not be able to afford a Louis Vuitton handbag that costs two thousand dollars, but I can certainly afford a Christian Dior perfume that costs a hundred dollars. Right, so that accessible luxury is able to be afforded to someone like me <laughs> due to LVMH strong presence in many categories, right, across these right. luxury products and brands. So. Uh, the company size also gives it a very material advantage, scale advantage over peers, and of course, the company has very little leverage and definitely has the room to put on more debt to finance acquisitions, especially during fire sale situations. I think the company has had a pretty successful track record of acquiring and turning around brands during distressed times. China does account for more than thirty percent of the company's sales. And it is true that China has been a big driver of luxury market growth in recent years. But I just want to say that、um, LVMH is well diversified geographically, 
across other regions like U.S., Europe, and other markets. And most importantly, we believe in the supremacy and diversification of the company's brands globally, its pricing discipline and grip over distribution, and its ability to cut back marketing and control costs in a macroeconomic slowdown, whether that's in China or elsewhere. So let's look uh, a little broader picture, a little take a step back to 30,000 feet. So we've looked in China, we've talked about companies within China. So let's talk about some of the risks that can impact an investment in China. And how do you estimate the impact of those risks? It's obviously not going to drive the thesis, but it will be a part of it and something that you're considering. Yeah, sure. So investing in China is definitely not without its risks. One in particular is kind of the government intervention or policy risk. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in our investment in Tencent. So back in early 2018, the Chinese government froze new game approval and licensing for all game publishers in China. And just, you know, in an effort to crack down on content uh, content creation. Mm -hmm. Partly due to this and also the general fear about the broader economy, Chinese economy, Tencent's shares have actually sold off a lot, enough where we were able to initiate a position last year at a healthy discount to our estimate of intrinsic value. Now, luckily, the regulatory ban was short-lived, and it was over by year-end 2018. Um, And then also, Tencent was able to weather this headwind much better than other gaming peers due to its more diversified business model, deriving revenue from gaming, subscriptions, and advertising, et cetera. So, um, you know, this is one way that they were able to mitigate that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. And also in the last few years, Tencent has invested in many healthcare startups around the country in China, seeking to combine technology and data with healthcare and trying to lower China's healthcare cost and improving medical access for all. Now, we believe the Chinese government needs the help of private sector in order to address some of the longstanding issues, social issues in China. Mm-hmm. And Tencent is definitely among the better positioned private firms to help the government to solve big problems, which should hopefully um, shield or partially shield the company from onus regulation. And then um, in terms of kind of government intervention or policy risk, uh, another one of our investment in China, Shandong Weigao, um, it kind of, you know, is not completely escaped from this risk either. Mm-hmm. Shandong Weigao is one of China's largest medical device manufacturer with a very broad product portfolio across medical consumables, interventional products, and domestic brands of orthopedic implant devices. Similar to Tencent, like I said, mm-hmm. it's not shielded from the risk. Um, the Chinese government introduced new policies to reduce inefficiency in China's healthcare system. This unfortunately has created some near-term pressure on pricing and margin for all medical device manufacturers in China. But we actually see this as actually a long-term positive for Weigao because we see it as Weigao, the company, Mm -hmm. as a consolidator in China's fragmented medical device industry. And, you know, Weigao, scale should allow the company to squeeze out smaller domestic suppliers that are likely to suffer even more from this regulatory headwind that is happening, 
while foreign competitors will struggle due to Chinese government's eagerness to promote large domestic players that are able to deliver technology innovation into these national champions. So these are some of the ways Mm -hmm. how we incorporate the government intervention or policy risks in our investment. So one last question for you. Um, Given everything that's gone on really over the last couple of years, no conversation about China would be complete without talking about the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China. What impact, if any, have you seen uh, or could we see on some of the companies that we've discussed today? Yeah, sure. So I think in terms of direct impact of trade war on all the companies I mentioned, it will be very minimal. Uh, But there might be some indirect impact. For example, given the prevalence of WeChat and some other properties of Tencent, you know, um, that applies to pretty much all businesses, individuals and organizations in China, um, the trade war has certainly introduced more uncertainties to the operating environment for many businesses or entrepreneurs in China. Therefore, we're seeing indirect impact of the trade war and maybe an economic slowdown in China via lower growth in advertising revenue to Tencent. So that's that's kind of some of the indirect impact that we might be seeing, not direct on the companies that I've talked about. Great. Well, Yuting, thank you so much for joining me. This has been fascinating. I've learned quite a bit. Uh, hopefully the listeners have as well. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.